0: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We're also joined as a guest down the line by David Roberts, who is chairman of Nationwide. Today we'll be talking about Nationwide and their choice of Joe Garner as a new chief executive to replace Graham Beale, who is leaving the Building Society next year. Secondly, we'll look at the upheaval in bank research as Europe adopts MIFID II rules. And finally, a look at Apple Pay as it develops the next phase of its payments technology. First, though, to that nationwide story. I'm joined by David Roberts, as I say. David, thanks very much for joining us. This is obviously a key appointment. You have been looking for a chief executive for some time. I think I'm right in saying in the last few CEOs at Nationwide have been appointed internally. This time you've gone for an outsider and a kind of fairly well-known former banker, albeit one who's been through a kind of technology reincarnation. Why have you gone outside to bring in Joe Garner?
1: Well, I think, Patrick, the core responsibility of the board is to find the best person for the challenges of the next few years. And as we stood back as a board and looked at the key issues that we face, we started with a very clear view that the single most important thing was the values and the ethics and the ethos of Nationwide and a commitment to the mutual business model. We secondly look for a financial services executive, but somebody with a very strong customer and market lens. And thirdly, we look for somebody who could really help us pilot our way through the digital transformation that is taking place in retail banking and help build the capabilities that we would need to be able to build on our very strong platform and compete effectively. And we're in the hugely fortunate position of having a very substantial list of proven executives who were interested in this role. But we were looking for that extra thing. And what Joe brings is this tremendous commitment to customers, customer service, rooted in his marketing uh, days of P&G, his real understanding of financial services from his time running HSBC in the UK. Uh, Allied to that, the deep technology and operations uh, expertise gained in the last couple of years at OpenReach if you put all of those things together, that's actually a very compelling package when you think about the, the the markets that we're going into. He fitted our brief completely and that we felt most importantly, he was totally committed to the mutual business model and the ethics and ethos and values that are nationwide.
0: Clearly, as I said at the beginning, he's, he's a name who will be recognised by at least people within the industry. So it, it's a coup in that sense. And I suppose that befits Nationwide's relatively strong profile in the overall market at the moment. Post-crisis, you have, I think it's fair to say, strengthened your position relative to traditional banks, which have been both financially and reputationally hurt. Do you feel that you're on, on a bit of a high at the moment?
1: Oh, I think we feel confident that our position is strong. You know, Graham Beale and the team here have done an outstandingly good job. In piloting nationwide through the crisis but they've done much more than that they've replaced the core infrastructure we've done the heart and lungs transplant on our core technology that others have yet to face up to the reputation and the trust that's implicit in nationwide the service standards are all very high and that's being recognized and rewarded by record business whether it be in current accounts in mortgages or indeed in savings we're seeing some sort of record flows but I think we're suitably paranoid, Patrick. I actually believe the market we're going into is going to be very competitive, very contestable, fluid, dynamic, where the standards won't be set by traditional retail banks. They'll be set by the sort of, Amazons, the Googles, the John Lewises of this world. And therefore, our job is to make sure we're fit to compete in, in tomorrow's market. I think it's testimony to the success that Graham and the team have built that we had so many high-quality people uh, really would, would, uh, throwing their hat into the ring to be the next CEO. But actually, that's yesterday. We have to prepare for tomorrow and make sure that we're equally successful in the markets that we face. So I think we have a real good platform. We're proud of where we are. Graham and the team done a great job. But actually, we're very focused on how do we improve and how do we really raise our standards and those of the industry because Nationwide is and can be a force for good in the industry.
0: Well, that takes me neatly on to my final question, really. Reputationally, you've benefited from the troubles of your traditional rivals over the past few years. As you said, rivals going forward or the competition is going to be very different in the future. What will Nationwide look like in, in five or 10 years from now? Because you, you're a A traditional type of of lending organisation. You've got a big network of branches, albeit you've got a, a strong online presence as well. But what is Nationwide going to look like? How will it transform itself over those coming years?
1: Well, I think the first and foremost thing is we are owned by and run for the benefit of our members. So our sole objective is to give great service and great products, very competitive and good advice and guidance to our members. That won't change. We're very committed to that mutual business model. We think it's distinctive. We want to make that benefit of membership more tangible. So I think that's the first thing I would say.
0: More tangible how? You get money off things?
2: Or...
1: Well, we already return quite material amounts of money through our loyalty pricing, whether that be loyalty saver, loyalty mortgage. And I think you can expect to see us, the, the recommend a friend offer that we have running in the, uh, the current account market at the moment is proving to be very successful. So I think you can expect to see us do more in a way of recognizing and rewarding membership.
3: Okay. Uh, and
1: that's, that's a story for another day, though. But that is absolutely a key part, I think, of the platform of, of what Nationwide is, tangible recognition that's not just financial, but also other ways for membership. I think the second thing you can expect us uh, is we have a sizable branch network. We're very committed to that network. 700 is about the optimal number that most people would say is right for a national organization such as, as Nationwide. We're investing heavily in that, but the nature of what, so we've talked about 500 million pounds for investment in Nationwide branches, but I think the nature of what those branches will do, so that will change. So that takes us, I think, much more into what we call help, guidance, and advice. We think it's a social responsibility. It's an area that our members are saying they absolutely want is more help, more guidance, more advice. And that's something that we are working on ourselves, but also working on with the regulators to see how we can ensure that we deliver a great, predictable, and conduct-friendly service for our members in the overall management of their financial affairs. Within that, obviously, the whole area of retirement is a really interesting opportunity for everyone in the sector. I think you can see uh, it's, it's absolutely in our sweet spot with our members. That would be the other thing that I would add to. I think, finally, there will be a continued investment in building out our digital and mobile presence. We say, you know, building the digital society is one of the things that we're very focused on. But we need to be clear that for a lot of our members who are at the leading edge of digital, that means one thing. But for actually for an awful lot of our members, this is about bringing uh, the benefits of digital and mobile very sensitively and certainly recognising that for a lot of people, it's a small part of how they want to interact with us. So branches will always remain, I think, in the timescale you're talking about, a very important part of our distribution.
0: All told, though, uh, plenty of things for the new Chief Executive, Joe Garner, to focus on. David, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Pleasure. Thank you.
0: Emma, what did you think of David Roberts' rationale there for hiring Joe Garner, a man who's come from outside the mutual sector, outside nationwide, a former HSBC chief executive, to take nationwide through into the next stage of its development in a pretty fast-changing environment, really, for not only for mutuals but for the whole financial services sector?
4: Yes, well, one of the key reasons in selecting Joe was his digital and technological expertise having come from open reach. And this is key, as uh, David Roberts said, in leading nationwide through the next stage of its development and the era that all retail banks are currently in, which is this new digital era. Branch footfall is falling at about 10% a year quite rapidly. A lot of banks and building societies alike are closing their networks, and many now are focusing on enhancing digital channels, so online and mobile. At the same time, you have new digital only and, and mobile banks popping up. So you have Atom Bank soon to launch, and others that are focusing on offering purely mobile services. So this is key in hiring Joe Garner to lead this push. But Nationwide really faces a big challenge insofar as it's quite high in the ranks of customer service, but how does it translate this into online services? This is quite a key issue as it decides to migrate more transactions into online and and mobile channels.
0: Interesting that he said, when I asked him about branches, that he said, despite your point about falling footfall, they think their branch network is is about right. And contrary to most banks shutting branches week after week they're going to stick with their kind of network of 700 or so.
4: Well Nationwide has been one of the better in that sense it has about 700 as you say compared to the likes of Lloyd's which had over 2,000 the biggest in the country so they've had to rationalise but nonetheless Nationwide are uh, investing significant sums of money in order to overhaul and digitise their branch network so you can see a change in the layout of some of their biggest stores across London for example equally they've introduced nationwide now a new way of offering enhanced video links for customers to go in and more quickly apply for a mortgage for example so it is undergoing this overhaul of its branches in that sense but still figures do show that branch footfall is falling and whether it decides to cut its network over the coming years or not it will still have to focus on digitizing both branches and ensuring its apps mobile and online services are ahead of the curve in order to retain customers
0: just like everybody else. We'll see how they fare. Let's move on to the second topic. Laura, you have written a big piece on the changing world of equity research ahead of incoming rules on so called MIFID 2, which shake up this whole relationship between equity analysts and their clients. You found basically that banks are behind the scenes really doing quite a lot to shake up what they're doing what were the kind of main conclusions you found
3: firstly i would say this is going to really be a fundamental change in terms of the way banks are actually doing business on the research side because as it stands basically people who do business with the bank anyway effectively get the research thrown in for free and they do pay for it in different ways so it's basically generally included in their overall amount but they don't have to explicitly pay for research now under these new rules banks will have to explicitly charge people to actually consume the research. And what this means is that I was talking to one of the bank's research managers. He was saying they have clients who are actually relatively small investors who are getting hundreds of different pieces of research from different agencies every day. And they're able to do that because they aren't paying for any of it. But in the future, investors simply aren't going to be able to justify paying for hundreds and hundreds of these things. So they're going to end up getting a far smaller selection of research. And because of that, then all of the banks research. research teams have to try to find ways to innovate and differentiate themselves and make sure that if you have an investor which is going from buying research from say 30 houses to going to actually buying research from four then you have to really fight to be amongst that four because they're also competing with the other firms. I mean, there are independent research houses. There's also a lot of smaller firms who are doing research. So even if you're going to buy, say, four pieces, you may only take two of those from big investment banks. The others may come from the various other firms who actually do research. So it'll be quite tough for banks to actually fight to stay on the list. And that is why we're seeing them putting such efforts into actually trying to plan and trying to innovate and trying to find a way to make themselves stand out from the other providers.
0: It sounds like whichever way you cut it there are going to be job losses for equity analysts.
3: I think there are definitely going to be cuts. I mean, there are different views about the part of the market where that is actually going to fall. I mean, a lot of people who you talk to say they expect the cuts to fall more in the mid-tier, so not so much in the really big banks, but amongst the banks which don't have the same infrastructure behind them because... The really top banks are able to throw a lot of investment at it and they're able to spend a lot of time and energy now trying to work out how they can make themselves be the most competitive. But definitely there will be fewer equity analysts in the future and it's sensible in a way. I mean if you look at the coverage you could have an individual sector which isn't even a particularly big sector and there could be anything up to 80 different teams of analysts who are actually covering that and you really have to ask yourself can the 81st analyst covering that really add anything to the sum of human knowledge on that topic and if they can't really what are they doing there
2: Martin you wanted to Martin, yeah just a just to. a quick point i mean it makes some early movers by investment banks like bnp paribas who have in a way outsourced their equity research, in their case to a joint venture with Exxon, look quite prescient. They've done pretty well in that respect of getting ahead of the curve, but it also makes you wonder whether other banks where, you know, a lot of their research is considered a second tier would think about outsourcing this to a specialist the likes of Chevreux or Autonomous or something. You know, you could see consolidations among the independent specialists taking well, we've seen some that. Of this, yeah. The likes of
0: Unicredit and so on have done
2: exactly, exactly really that. Yeah, I think. BP yeah, Paribas. So exactly. I, we could see that become more of a trend, yeah, perhaps.
3: That's certainly something. And I guess the other really big thing banks have been trying to focus their energies on is basically how to keep hold of their research. So the really big problem they have is that, okay, you're only going to charge X number of clients for the research and you're going to email it on to them. How do you then? keep it? So how do you make the person who gets it not then share it with the next 100 people who then end up getting it for free? And you know there are various ways around it. There are online portals where you make everyone log in. There's already a bank which is having a unique client identifier put onto every single research report so that if it does end up falling into other hands, it's able to track back which of the clients has actually forwarded on to someone who isn't paying for it. But It's really hard to actually do those things because if there is someone who is really motivated to share, it, there's always ways to get around it. It wouldn't make sense to stop clients being able to actually turn it into a hard copy and actually print it because clients like that. However, once they have actually printed it, you can't really stop them from actually faxing it, sending it. So banks are spending a long time trying to work out how they can actually control it on that end. And then what, if any, options they have in terms of trying to actually take action against clients who do breach their client agreements by circulating it into the wider population.
0: Let's move on to our final topic, and it's quite a nice link in, actually, because we're talking about Apple Pay. And I think, as in research, really, where we're talking about you know moves away from big investment banks, Apple Pay is yet another example of non-banks, if you like, chipping away at old banking territory. A big theme that we discussed in last week's series, Beyond Banking, which I'll mention a bit more about later on. But, Martin, you've been looking at this Apple Pay initiative the obvious competitor that they're challenging here is paypal in many ways but it's it is another chunk out of the bank's uh, revenue stream as well potentially indirectly anyway
2: it's less about revenue i think this because the tech companies are providing this service for free paypal offer this service for free but transferring money to your friends and i think as long as you're not transferring across borders banks do it pretty much for free as part of the service. So I I don't think this is so much about revenue. It's another sign, really, that the big tech companies in the US in particular are encroaching further into the kind of core services that banks provide to their customers. So Apple are considering adding this person-to-person transfer service onto Apple Pay, which is the service they've launched, allowing users of iPhones or Apple Watches to pay for things in stores or online using the Apple Pay service where you upload your debit card or credit card details onto Apple Pay and then you pay through that and you can pay contactlessly in in stores. But the interesting thing for me is that it really signifies that the bank's have to be most worried, ultimately, I think, about the continued encroachment of these big tech companies into areas like payments and ultimately possibly even at some point lending because as part of the beyond banking series which you mentioned we looked at the rise of peer-to-peer lenders and other alternative lenders, non-bank lenders, and how the core business of lending is being eroded by some of these very fast growing alternative lenders, like the peer-to-peer or marketplace lenders as they call themselves increasingly lending club in the US or funding circle here in the UK, Zopa, are all growing at 100% a year or more than 100% a year. And they're branching out from just providing unsecured personal loans, and they're looking to branch out into mortgages, auto loans, student loans. This is the core bread and butter business of banks. And these platforms claim that they can provide it more efficiently and a better customer service than banks can. And if that's true, then you know this growth is going to continue. They're very small at the moment, but ultimately you can see the potential for them to grow, to become significant, take 20-30% market share in terms of new loans in these areas. Now, that's all well and good, but I think what really worries the banks when you talk to them privately about this is what happens if, say, an Amazon, which is already providing some lending services to merchants who are selling goods on the Amazon website? What if they branch out from just doing that to providing loans more generally? And perhaps even if they team up or acquire one of these peer-to-peer marketplace lenders and start to do it more widely, then you would have real problems for the banks because the power and the breadth and the, the resources of a big tech company like Amazon or Google or Facebook, they've all been getting into payments. But what if they started to move into lending? You know, that's the real worrying scenario for banks.
0: Well, Emma did a a special Beyond Banking podcast on a theme around this area last week. I don't know if, Emma, you wanted to have a final say on this point.
4: A number of banks are already onto this threat and as a result are reacting by teaming up with a number of new peer-to-peer lenders to ensure that if they can't provide a loan to say a small medium-sized business they can at least refer to this peer-to-peer lender. Therefore they don't look like they're turning away business and they're also collaborating and I've been told that some banks are even developing their own internal peer-to-peer platform so that they're able to make swifter credit decisions and more nimbly lend to some of these small businesses which is an area they were trenched from during the financial crisis so many are aware of this threat and are therefore teaming up with a number of sort of technologically advanced and online lenders to combat this for the future
0: if you can't beat them join them That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura and Emma here in the studio, David Roberts from Nationwide down the line, and also thank you for listening. Remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking, and that Beyond Banking series is at ft.com slash beyond banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.